You're listening to TIP. You're not trying to find the best quality company. You're trying to find the best handicap odds. So you're trying to find the thing that, you know, you go to the racetrack, you're not trying to find the winner. You want to find the show or the place at good value. And that's how, I don't know, I don't want to say that's how professional racetrack bettors do it, but that's what I would do if I was a professional racetrack better. You're trying to find the best return for the unit of risk that you're taking on or the best return. I think that's right. The best return for the unit of risk that you're taking on. I do think that there, it's certainly the case that the underlying business can do very well. But as an investor, that's only half of the equation. The other half is trying to find good value and good risk-adjusted return. In this episode, I chat with Tobias Carlyle about the key findings from his book on value and concentrated investing, the power of mean reversion and its role in providing value in undervalued stocks, conclusions from academic research on concentration and diversification, the role of courage in investing, some excellent points on concentration from investing legends like Warren Buffett and John Maynard Keynes, and a whole lot more. I first heard of Tobias Carlyle in 2020 and read his book, The Acquirer's Multiple, as it came recommended by many investors that I highly respected. At that point in my investing life, I was looking closely at value and it helped me to understand the importance that value has in generating excellent returns. Toby recently came on to the TIP community and did an excellent Q&A with the community, which helped stoke my interest in learning more from him about the quantitative side of investing. So I reread the acquirer's multiple and then also checked out concentrated investing. I enjoyed them so much that I decided I wanted to pick his brain on a few topics about quantitative analysis, portfolio concentration, and a few other key questions I had after reading his books and listening to him talk with the community. Concentrated investing was a very informative read and did a great job of looking at concentrated investors with tenure. He and his co-authors highlighted concentrated investors who stood the test of time and did a great job of showing the evolution of a few investing legends. If you find Tobias's take on investing interesting, you'll enjoy this episode, whether you're a quantitative investor or a qualitative investor like myself. Now, without further delay, let's get right into this week's episode with Tobias Carlyle. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard, Patrick Donnelly, and Kyle Grieve, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Grieve, and on today's episode, I'm joined by friend of the Investors Podcast, Tobias Carlisle. Tobias, welcome to the show. Hey, Kyle. How are you? Awesome. So I read The Acquirer's Multiple a few years ago and then recently reread it. I've learned a lot from my first read and would love to talk more about some of the findings from that book. I also read a book you co-authored, Concentrated Investing, Strategies of the World's Greatest Concentrated Value Investors. So today, I figured we'd spend some time on some of the key findings from these books as they relate to value investing, data, and how qualitative investors can learn from the quantitative side of investing. So to kick it off, let's discuss why you called your fund Zig. This might seem inconsequential, but there is a good reason why you invest this way. Please break down why you Zig where others zag and why this gives you an advantage. That's a great question. And I like the contrast of the acquirer's multiple and concentrated investing, because really they are two very distinct strategies, two sort of distinct styles. Even though they're both value, they are very different. And the difference is acquirer's multiple. So the first book I wrote came out in 2012. It was called Quantitative Value. And I did some, I had a co-author in that, Wes Gray, who's done a PhD at Booth, good quantitative school. We found every bit of academic and industry research that we could on 
value investing, fundamental investing, credit, what drives stock price returns, what causes companies to fail, what causes businesses to fail, what causes them to succeed, what causes returns to work, like lots of anything we could think of. And we went back kind of 80 years, something like that, maybe even more. I think we went, you know, security analysis is 1934, but then we were looking at some of the old, there are these old statistical sort of research papers that were done on in the very early days when they could do like a regression analysis, linear regression. They were doing this stuff like pencil and they were doing like least squares method to work out with the variables that were impacting some of these things. And what they were looking at was manufacturing companies and what made them fail. And they'd come up with these like long string of, you know, days inventory outstanding or days receivables outstanding inventory, like all of these sort of things, inventory turnover. And then they'd stick a coefficient beside that, which was the, that's what those old least squares sort of regression analyses look like. Does that continue to work today for companies that were not manufacturing companies? And we tested it. And surprisingly, the intuition is pretty good because a lot of what it found was they're just common sense things. Like if you see payables blowing out, probably they're having trouble paying. If you're seeing receivables coming out, they don't have a lot of money coming in. If there's negative cash flow too much, like all of it is just, most of it is pretty intuitive. And so we found a lot of the studies and the papers were like that. They're pretty intuitive, even though they're sort of set up in a quantitative way. And finance papers are an absolute nightmare to read because they love all of the algebra and all that sort of stuff. And you've got to figure out what you're reading. It's, it's a nightmare to read them. But then once you sort of plug it into a computer and you narrow it down to one line, does it pass or does it fail? Then it's a pretty simple process. And it's trivial now to build that into a, a modeling system. So we took all of these ideas. We modified some of them because so something like Pierre Trotsky's F score, which a lot of people are familiar with, that's the fundamental score. So the idea was Pierre Trotsky went and looked at the cheapest of the cheap in the price to book value bucket. And then he said, which ones of these are the ones that are likely to perform? And, and all of the things that he's looking at are, are the business fundamentals improving? Is it sort of fundamentally strong? And then he looked at, do they issue shares or do they buy back shares? And so he was looking at purely at share issuance. And uh, as you know, there's some, you can have a buyback going, or well, he was looking at buybacks and you can have a, sh- it's, it's quite common these days for there to be a lot of share-based compensation. Could be like 15% of the market cap in share-based compensation. And so they're buying back 15%, which looks like a pretty hefty buyback, but they're issuing it on the other side. So your net buyback is nil. And so we just tweaked a few of the things to capture stuff like that. We tested this thing, as you'd expect, in a back test. It looked really good. I think that it is still, I think it is a very good way of investing. So this is quantitative value. The big muscle movements out of quantitative value were clearly mostly the price ratios. They drive a lot of the return. And provided your portfolio is big enough to get over the fact that you're going to step on some landmines, that you're going to make some errors in there. It's a very good way of consistently investing. And the, the real magic of it is that value can have very long periods of underperformance. And this thing doesn't care. Like it just keeps on going. You're seven years into underperformance. Doesn't matter. It's still ruthlessly applying the same method. And then it turns out that there are these very long cycles that sort of people get very upset when, because they've heard Buffett say there's no such thing as growth and value. Growth and value are tied at the hip. There's no valuation without a growth component to it. And that is true. But then the industry and academia divided into two. And it's just that. The reason that the academics do it is they say if something is very expensive on a price ratio basis, because the market has this idea that there's, you know, the efficient market hypothesis says there's no arbitrage gains available 
So therefore, it must be implying a very high rate of growth to justify that valuation. That doesn't work. Paying expensive prices with implied growth tends to underperform paying very low prices with low or negative implied growth. So we understand that as a sort of general principle. That's always the case. But then you could look more specifically at the growth rates. And it also turns out that growth tends to... So you look at the growth rate of the revenues or whatever it might be, cash flow, whatever. And it turns out that growth also tends to fall apart. Through all of this research that we did, it became pretty clear to me. And it was something that I had understood on an intuitive basis from reading a lot of this stuff. But it really sort of became clear in quantitative value that something very counterintuitive happens. And and it makes complete sense to me when you think about the fact that everybody in the market is trying to chase these excess gains. That's what everybody's here for. You could get a market, you can get spy, go to the beach. So everybody who's participating is trying to beat the market. And clearly that's an impossibility, particularly after trading and cost, most people are going to underperform. So how do you outperform? Well, you have to be where other people aren't. You have to be, you have to have some variant perception, as Michael Price calls it. You have to be doing something distinctly different from what everybody else is doing. And one of the ways that you can do something distinctly different is to go into those things that are particularly scary looking, either because it looks like they're going out of business or the stock price has gone down a lot or revenues have been dropping and you buy those things when that has happened. And what you're relying on is that there is going to be this mean reversion. So mean reversion is just this idea that things go back to normal over time. There are cycles in business. There are cycles that take long, long periods of time. So I don't know how long a human can really understand a cycle, but once you've been doing something for three years and it's been running against you for three years, it feels like you're probably wrong. It's time to give up. Five years, time to give up. Ten years, time to give up. Cycles are much, much longer than that. And so really all that I was trying to do with the acquirer's multiple was show here's a very simple price ratio which is, it, it is the best one because it's, it just, it has a lot of information in the acquirer's multiple. So what it is, it's EBIT operating income compared to the enterprise value of a company. And the enterprise value of a company is the market capitalization. And then you include any debt because that would be what an acquirer would have to take on if they acquired one of these things. Then you get any cash that they have. So you deduct that from the calculation. And then you look for other things that are debt like quasi debt or that sort of stand in front of the equity. So preferred stock gets paid first, often has a dividend attached to it. A minority interest would have to be carved out and so on and so on. So you get this, like that's the true price that you're paying. And then the EBIT operating income is kind of what's flowing back in. It's not a cash flow measure, but it's a pretty close cash flow measure. Cash flow has its own problems and cash flow is reconstructed from the income statement. It's not looking at actual cash flow. So I just use EBIT because it's a simpler measure to calculate. You can start at the top of the income statement. So as you go further down the income statement, there's more and more discretion for management. There's decisions that get made. So you could have two identical companies that could have different bottom lines just because of the way they're capitalizing expenses or whatever they happen to be doing. So I like to start with EBIT operating income because it's revenues minus cost of goods sold gives you your gross profit gross profit backing out just a handful of things that there's not a lot of discretion on. You get pretty close to getting EBIT, EBITDA, and then you make a lot of other decisions and you get down to the bottom line. So that's a very good metric. It's a very simple metric. And when you, when you run it, you can definitely see this mean reversion occurring in those stocks. So I said, this is the idea. Here's a very simple price ratio. And here is the reason why it tends to work because there is this mean reversion in undervalued 
stocks and mean reversion. What drives mean reversion is when industries tend to go together. They tend to companies and industries. It's cyclical. When business gets really tough, they either fold involuntarily, they go bankrupt, or they leave because there are easier things to do somewhere else. Or the other way around, business gets really good. Lots of capital flows into the industry. There are new businesses started. They compete away some of the super economic profits. And so that's mean reversion in really simple terms. So that was quantitative value. Sorry, that was the acquirer's multiple, explaining a simple price metric and the reason why it works. And some of the people, and I just added some stories to show here, there's activists that come in when this stuff is broken. This is the actual mechanics of, in practical terms, this is what happens to turn these companies around. Concentrated investing, on the other hand, is a completely different approach. Same intuition, still trying to buy something undervalued. But there we went and we, we sort of worked backwards. We said, let's find guys who've survived for more than 25 years in the markets. Because that's, that's a hard thing to do. Most fund managers, like Peter Lynch was in the market for 13 years. He ran that thing for 13 years. Not many guys. And, and you know, um, Bill Miller, he was about 13 years in the market. You go and look at these guys, the periods of time when they invest are very short and you can have a value cycle could go for 11 or 13 years. Then you can have a growth cycle that goes like the last one probably ran from 2010 to probably say 2022. Maybe it's still going on now. I'm not sure. Like the fangs seem to be sprinting ahead, but the cycles are long. So you need to find someone who's survived more than one cycle, really. So Buffett is a great example because Buffett has survived over and over again and thrived through cycles. But there have been long periods of time where he's underperformed. So the late 1990s, I forget which magazine it was, but say it was Business Week, have him on the cover and say, you know, is Buffett done? Same thing happened again in like 2019, is Buffett done? You go back further. It just happens over and over again. They get these long periods of time where your strategy just doesn't really work. And so we wanted to find people who'd survived through a few cycles, so they had some ability to stay. And then on top of that, they weren't just holding SPY. They were concentrated value investors. And then what were they doing to allow them to do that? And we looked across, there, there's a guy, Christian CM. He's done it in the oil and gas industry, which is a tough industry. That's a really cyclical up and down industry. Looked at Charlie Munger because he had invested. Bef- he was an investor before he was in blue chip stamps and with Buffett. We looked at Keynes. John Maynard Keynes, the famous economist who had been, he's kind of an interesting character because he was, he'd won this very prestigious prize for being an economist. And he was kind of a famous economist because he'd said something about the reparations that Germany was forced to pay to following World War I. And he had said, this will blow up in everybody's face, which, have, and then of course, World War II occurred and he was vindicated by that. And so he was, he was an incredibly intelligent, towering intellect. People were listening to what he was saying. And he started out using his superior economic insights to invest as a macro guy, and he got blown up twice. So if Keynes can't do it, I don't think many people can. He eventually became sort of a compounding Buffett-style investor, where he knew the market cap of this company buys this many cars coming off the line. That's cheap on this basis. So this car company is cheaper than this one, or it's better than this one. He was a real long-term hold, and he survived for a long period of time. So we included him and some other guys who are still operating today. And what we found, we're looking at, I looked at the academia around concentration and diversification because that's important. So if you're an efficient markets guy, what you're trying to do, you know, now it's easy to put together a portfolio of cheap stocks because it costs you, you can, Robinhood costs you nothing to trade. You could put together a market portfolio for virtually nothing. But at one point in time, it was exceptionally expensive to do that. Thousands and that, like so expensive to do it that you couldn't, 
really do it practically. So, what they were interested in doing, what the academics were interested in doing, was how few stocks can we hold to give us the market return. And they're assuming an efficient markets world. So, they would say, and what they found kind of an interesting finding, I think, that 20 stocks gets you like 90% of the performance of the index. This is just randomly selected. 20 stocks gets you 90% of the performance. 30 stocks gets you like 95%. And then you keep on adding stocks on after that to get you the last little asymptotic down to a zero until you, get, until you own the market and then you're getting the market performance. But at some point through there, the cost of owning those marginal stocks starts outweighing the benefit that you get. So they decided sort of the numbers between 20 and 30. Benjamin Graham, who was a value guy, of course, did a similar experiment and his numbers fell out at about 20 or 30. So he found the same thing. And remember, this is not trying to beat the market. This is just randomly selecting to perform in line with the market. You're just picking ping pong balls out of a bucket with tickers on them and putting those in your portfolio. So how do you then go about outperforming or how do you get a divergent performance from the market? I mean, that's kind of a challenge now. One of the things you can do is, of course, you just start looking at price ratios by the cheaper things. And then that gives you this widely, wildly divergent performance, but that's not always a good thing. So you, you spend lots of time underperforming, you spend some time outperforming. What the data says is that over the very long term, you tend to outperform. So these concentrated investing guys, they were, they were doing something a little bit more again. Some of them were Kelly betting. So this was, a, I think, kind of an innovation of Buffett. So I don't really know that it existed outside of Buffett, but he understood the Kelly paper. So John Kelly, who was a MIT, a Bell Labs physicist, had imagined this private wire where you got this information about some sporting event, baseball. I think you knew the outcome and you could bet on it before everybody else could bet on it. If you have this inside information where you know the outcome, how much of your bankroll should you bet? And then he added some complications because it was Bell Labs. It had to be like a telecommunications-based idea. So he said, well, what if it's a noisy line? And so sometimes the information is wrong. You're not certain now. So you can't bet 100% of your bankroll because if you're wrong, you're wiped out and we'd never want to wipe out. That's what we're trying to avoid. So what he, what he ended up coming up with was this edge over odds. So your edge is the private information, what you know. And the odds are what you're offered by the bookmaker or the market, the market implied odds. And then that tells you how big to size your bet as a proportion of your bankroll to maximize your rate of return in a geometric sense. It doesn't make sense for some very rich person to be betting 95% of their capital on an almost sure thing if it means that they're going to go back to being, you know, they're not going to be very, very rich at the end of that. So there's clearly there's some limitations to this idea. That's that the personal utility of the money. But the idea is essentially that the opportunity is the more you should always bearing in mind that there's some risk in it and you don't want to wipe out. I think that Kelly's very hard to use because the market implied odds are hard to calculate. Is How good is your edge really? And then Kelly was really developed. The way it worked best was if you're sitting at a blackjack table and you're getting these hands in series, one after the other. And so each time you get to bet some portion of your bankroll, but that's not the way you invest in the markets. In the markets, you've got an unlimited number of investments that you could make at any given point in time, including you could have a treasury bill, which is a pretty certain return, but a low one. And you could have something that's quite speculative that is a very uncertain return, but a very high one. And you could have them both available at the same time. And it could be that you're sizing both at more than 50% of your bankroll in which case you're risking ruin if one of them doesn't pay off. And so, that's, that doesn't work. So, you have to apply it differently. But the, the idea is the intuition of it is, is 
It's kind of sound that you should size up better bits, size down less certain bits. And I think what really stood out to me from reviewing that whole book was the ones that are best to size up, and I think this is what Buffett does, it's not so much the ones that offer the greatest return, it's the ones that offer the most certain return. That seems to be Buffett's approach. And I really think that's the key to what Buffett has done, that he never risks ruin. He's looking for things that are almost certain, even if the return is you know, modest, he would prefer a modest certain return to an uncertain high return. And that sort of means that under most circumstances, under, uh, he's got a great line, which I just, I can't think what it is at the moment, but he says something like, the problem is that most people set their course in the markets, assuming that most of the time I get pretty good returns. And every now and again, these very rare events come along and they're essentially they're wiped out. But he, what he does is he sets his course, assuming that these rare events are going to occur all the time at any given point in time, and he's going to survive that rare event. And so then he does well, and that's sort of the cycle thing that I was talking about before, where he goes through these bad cycles for himself. He gets a bad magazine cover, but at the end of it, he's still alive. He's still going. So that's sort of that's those two books are a pretty good example of the the range of value, I think, and the the way that I think about investing. And I think you you look at any given opportunity somewhere on that spectrum from cheap statistical value, and you should do something with that. And every now and again. I'm mostly a cheap statistical investor, but you know I do believe that you get these like 20 punch cards over the course of your life. You get a punch card, you get 20 opportunities probably over the course of an investing life. It's like one every two or three years, something like that, that you should think about sizing up. And I just think the more you do it, the better you get at identifying these things because you see the reasons why things fall apart, the reasons why things don't work. And that's why in- investing is really one of the the few things that you can get better with at age, which, with age, which is one of the reasons that I like it. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top rated personal finance app, has built in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget, and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com mi. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash mi for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash mi for an extended 30-day free trial. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. 
Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. US only. Learn more at public.com disclosures slash high-yield-account. All right, back to the show. So there's an interesting Credit Suisse research article that was released in 2013. In it, they had some interesting findings on high-quality businesses. So they determined that there was little evidence of mean reversion for a company's operating performance. Companies in the top quartile remain there over extended periods of time. Great businesses remain great. Only 9% of the top quartile moved to the bottom quartile, and 79% of the top quartile remained in that top half. Poor businesses continue to report poor performance. 6% of these uh, had a chance of moving from the bottom to the top quartile. I'd love to get your thoughts on this research piece, given all the uh, work you've done on uh, regression to the mean. If it's Credit Suisse, it's probably Michael Mabison. Was it a Mabison? Mabison has done some research where he says he looks at 10-year rolling periods and he divides, he ranks all of these companies on return on invested capital. So this is one of the little, when we're talking about quality, there are lots of different ways to measure quality. And return on invested capital is sometimes used as a, as a quality sort of metric. And I think it is a quality metric. It's just that it's, it could also be a profitability metric. And profitability can be a little bit mean reverting. Quality could be quality of the balance sheet, quality of the earnings, recurability, predictability of the earnings, all of those sort of things. So I do think this, this, it's certainly the case that there is some momentum in earnings and some of these businesses that do tend to do very well will continue to do well. If you've got a good niche where you're making money, you've got money flowing in and you've got a sensible management team that's not over-levering the company or doing anything silly like doing silly acquisitions or something like that. They're just focused on what the business is and they keep on doing that. That's what Buffett is hunting for. You know, ideally, they're kind of returning capital rather than sort of going into slower return investments, which sometimes that tends to happen because they get a bigger universe, they get a bigger empire if they do that. But that is the case that there are a lot of these things that are excellent businesses that just keep on doing that. The problem is that on a risk adjusted basis, on a valuation adjusted basis, you don't want to be, you can still overpay for a company like that. And maybe the case that a really good quality company, you can overpay a lot and the quality of the company will bail you out eventually that it'll catch up. But I have seen it happen enough times that some of the late 1990s, everybody remembers the late 1990s as a dot-com bubble. And it certainly was an element of it being a dot-com bubble. But really what it was was a large cap growth bubble. And the companies that were 
we'd all agree that they were a high quality company. So we'd be talking about Microsoft, Walmart. I can't remember the rest of them off the top of my head, but they were, you know, they're all big recurring revenue companies that are very stable. And from 2000, at the peak of the bubble to 2015, when they sort of, it took them that long to work off their overvaluation. They were still growing most of the time through their like extraordinarily high rates, still being high quality companies. It's just that the stock did nothing for that period of time. You're not trying to find the best quality company. You're trying to find the best handicap odds. So you're trying to find the thing that, you know, you go to the racetrack, you're not trying to find the winner. You want to find the show or the place at good value. And that's how. I don't know. I don't want to say that's how professional racetrack bettors do it, but that's what I would do if I was a professional racetrack better. You're trying to find the best return for the unit of risk that you're taking on or the best return. I think that's right. The best return for the unit of risk that you're taking on. I do think that it's certainly the case that the underlying business can do very well, but as an investor, that's only half of the equation. The other half is trying to find good value and good risk-adjusted returns. And so, the ideal scenario is like that's really what Buffett is doing is he, he's got that list of very high quality companies that compound and grow with great management teams. It's just that they don't ever get cheap enough for him to buy. So, he sits there not buying them and then he waits until that scenario happens where either it's a system-wide you know, system collapse, the market collapses and all of this stuff gets cheap or there's something that happens that's specific to that stock that doesn't impact the business. It's just that the stock gets knocked. So, American Express with its salad oil scandal in the 60s is a good example of that where you famously went and sat beside cash registers at restaurants and saw them. You know, the consumers were still presenting the cards. The restaurant was still accepting the cards. It hadn't impacted the most important part of the business from his perspective, the salad oil scandal. I don't know if your listeners know that story, but I'll tell it very quickly. It was basically there was this guy, Anthony Tiny DeAngelis, who was a speculator in salad oil in soybean, I think it was soybean oil, something like that. And he was trying to corner the market, which is where you buy more, you buy up a whole lot of oil and you, you squeeze anybody who's short. And then when they come to buy, they can only buy from you at a very high price. He kept on buying oil and the price went against him. And so, he ended up coming up with the, the tanks had to be stored somewhere. So, he had these warehouses that store the tanks and he used seawater to make the tanks look like they were more full than they were. And he had these little devices where when the inspectors came and put a little dipstick in to check that there was oil in there, it just went into a little tube and the rest was seawater. And then he also had some pipes that he moved the oil around. It was very clever kind of. The amount of effort that went into the fraud, if only he'd found some way to do it non-fraudulently, probably would have been very successful. But eventually, the soybean oil market collapsed because they figured out that this guy's somebody pointed out he had more oil in his tanks than there was in the entire world, which meant that that was not possible. And so, he got liquidated. It wiped out some of the banks. And then American Express had this business where they would give these warehouse receipts, which is how you turn a commodity into something that you can trade or borrow against. And so, it was American Express who had said, yes, uh, he does have this oil in his, in his tanks. And it turned out that was not the case. And so, they went and sued everybody they could think of, the brokers and everybody, including American Express. And American Express had the deep pockets. And so, American Express could have been on the hook for, it was like 60 million bucks or something like that. Buffett looked at it and figured out it was unlikely to be as the payout was ultimately unlikely to be as big as that. But even if it was, it'd be like a one-time dividend that they wouldn't collect, and it would keep on going, provided that the business franchise wasn't impacted. And that was why it was so important that he went and sat and looked at people were still handing over the card, people were still accepting the card. That likely was going to work. So he put forty percent of the business in. He was at that stage a much more 
deep value investor. And so, he was really just playing on the crisis, expecting that he would buy it and it would bounce and then he would basically get out. And so, he did that and he made some good money doing that. But then he revisited it when he was running Berkshire. So, this was when he was running the partnership and he revisited it when he was running Berkshire Hathaway. And it had grown enormously over the period of time that he had been out of the stock, whatever it had been, 10 or 20 years. And he used it as an example or he learned from it himself that you buy these things when they have that little moment of weakness and then you just never sell. You just let the underlying business chug ahead and that's how you get your great returns. Ultimately, that's where we're all trying to get to, that kind of investment style, but it's a very long process, I guess, to get there. You talked a a little bit about uncertainty and there was a really good quote in your book by Seth Klarman, which was, uh, quote, high uncertainty is frequently accompanied by low prices. By the time the uncertainty is resolved, prices are likely to have risen. How do you relate this quote to courage in investing? That's something I've been thinking about a lot. So, courage is is not something that you want in an investor, I think. Because I I get these, I get particularly through, you know, the whole 2020 stock market bubble. And even now when we're back, like everybody's pretty bullish at the moment, maybe less so over the last few days, but pretty bullish. I sometimes, you know, I, I look at things that say when NVIDIA ramps, like I would say, you know, if you just look at this on a fundamental basis, this is probably likely very, very, this is too expensive. It's crazy. Like it's just, there's so much growth implied in this valuation. And I'll get all of these people come in who are much more brave than I am. I absolutely love that quote from Klarman. And I just think it's such a true, there, there are these times in the market where the market goes down a lot and it comes through Twitter and it comes through the news and it just, I can talk to people. And I get a little contact high from looking at Twitter. I get the, I can feel the adrenaline of people. I can feel how nervous everybody is. And you can tart when the, when the portfolio is whipping around then. That's often the best time to be investing. And so, rather than rely on courage to kind of charge in and spray money around in that, I like to just, it's, I think the simpler thing is just to remember what you're trying to do and to focus on the valuation rather than the price. And you get these you can say, yeah, I could, it's possible that I'm buying too early and I'm going to get a better price if I just wait. But it's also possible that the price just bounces from here and I completely miss it. So, you just look at the opportunity set that you have. Klarman has another quote where he says, the best investors are, you know, it's a contrarian attached to a calculator. And that's kind of the way you need to think. Not so much, con- I know in my, in my Twitter profile picture, I have something like contrarian, but I mean it in the sense that I use that word specifically because it's, there's a laconic, there, there are two very famous papers in investing. One of them is the, the paper by Fanner and French, where they talk about the efficient market hypothesis. And they also talk about the factors. And one of the factors is value, which they define on a price to book value basis. One of them is size. Then there's the market. And then I think that was the initial paper. There are only two or three. What am I missing there? Size, value, maybe momentum. I forget what the, what's in that first paper, but pretty hot on its heels, another paper comes out by Laconashik, Schlieffer and Vishni called Contrarian Investment. And their idea in that paper was it's not, the market is not perfectly efficient. The market is filled with people who make behavioral errors because they extrapolate. So, he contrasts these two investors. There's the extrapolation investor who looks at earnings going up or stock prices going up and just sees that keeps on going up forever and ever. And then he contrasts and he calls those, na- or they call them naive extrapolation investors. And then on the other side is the contrarian investor who expects mean reversion. And so, expects the very high rate of growth to slow down or the earnings going down or the value being compressed to turn around at some point. And clearly, it's better to be the contrarian investor. 
the, the contrarian investor gets better returns. I mean, it's objectively, empirically better to be the contrarian investor. So that's the way that I use that expression. But the point is that you're not so much, it's not a brave step to go in and buy those things. It's just an application of the same thing that I, if the market collapses tomorrow, it'll make no difference to the way that I invest. I always do the same thing. I'm always, because I'm, I have the funds that I run are both long only. There's long only, fully invested all the time. And I've looked at lots and lots of different ways of, it doesn't, intuitively, I don't like being fully invested all the time. I would much rather carry cash. It's just that my inherent bearishness makes me want to pull back all the time. And I think you're better off. And this is where, I, when I've looked at it, and I've looked at lots of different ways of trying to time with a little bit of cash in there, just none of them work properly. The only thing that you can do is give yourself a, you know, Buffett says you can have, I think he says you can have a smooth 12% or a lumpy 15%. And that's basically what I found. Like you, you can quantitatively demonstrate that you can have the smooth 12% or a lumpy 15%. And the difference is really when you're remaining fully invested or holding a whole lot of cash. And so I, of course, you want the lumpy 15% if you've got a long time horizon and you don't want to use that money. So I remain fully invested all the time. I don't try to time the market. If it collapses tomorrow, and we're down 50%, I'll still go through my regular rebalance. I'll buy whatever's cheap and I'll keep on going. It won't make any difference at all. So there's no bravery in it for me. It's just implementing the same program all the time, whether it's high or low. So one common feature of the investors that you looked at in concentrated investing was that many of them had permanent sources of capital. This allowed them to utilize behavior which could endure volatility, like you just discussed, without worrying about capital exiting. Why do you think most other investors with permanent source of capital don't take advantage of this? There's not a lot of... Buffett describes it as an inoculation. I remember reading the Buffett book by Roger Lowenstein, The Making of an American Capitalist, and just thinking... And I, hadn't really, I didn't really know anything about the markets. Mum and dad weren't like stock market people. I didn't really come from a market background. And I read that book and I was like, oh, this is interesting. There is kind of a... There's a method to this. And also, I like the fact that he was... You know, he talked about honesty and character, and I had always thought business is about being ruthless and being aggressive, and and that didn't really appeal to me much at all. But I like the that you can try and do the right thing, and that'll be a good way to invest. So when you read through, like, it's not just value. The way that Buffett and Munger are doing it, there's something else going on in there as well. And it's once you sort of start down that road, Buffett's so far ahead down that road. It's funny the number of times that I go back and read is 19. 79 letter or whatever it is, or his 65 uh, like partnership letters. And I find something in there that I think that I've come up with this idea myself originally. And I go back and I find that he's looked at it, decided that it doesn't work and dismissed it. You know, that I've done that more than once, many times. And I've read those letters lots and lots of times. I've read all of those letters many, many times. And so it's in there. And I've read that same sentence 10 times and just not understood actually what he meant when he was saying it. And then think I've found something, go back and find that, realize he's already considered it. So, he's always working through this same idea. And I think that it's basically what we've just discussed. Be conservative in your estimates of what the business is going to do. Try and invest at a pretty big discount to that. Try and survive. Don't get too overlevered. All of those things. And so, you get, after a while, you sort of soak this stuff in and it governs the way that you do everything you think about, the way you think about investing. But the number of times... so. when I started reading this, I think I read that book when I was 17, something like that, 17 or 18. And then I went and practiced law and I practiced law as a corporate advisory, which is like you do mergers and acquisitions, anything from mergers and acquisitions to reviewing annual reports to 
whatever it might be, whatever the company needs, whatever the corporate needs you to do, you go in and you sort of help them do that. And then I moved out of that into an activist firm where we'd approach these small cap mostly that were just being run very badly. And often we'd say to them, you know, why don't you do a buyback? Because you've got all this, you sold this business, you've got all this cash, you're very undervalued. Why don't you buy back some stock and this, this will be the effect. And they just never considered it before. They'd never had anybody say, because they came from an engineering background, they've invented this product. They've had been very successful. They've listed this company. They've done very well. They've sold off some sideline or something like that. And they've got some cash. They just don't think in those terms of, they don't understand fully the mechanics of the, of, of the business. And I just found it strange. I found it amazing. Like they'd be paying a dividend and raising capital at the same time. Like, so they're just all these silly things going on that just didn't make any sense. And I'd come from this, you know, reading Buffett when I was 17. And I just think this is just obvious, right? Why would you be doing all these silly things? And if you understood really what was going on, if you thought about what was going on, you wouldn't, nobody would do any of this stuff. It's one of the positions that I like now that I talk about a little bit. They've got exactly the same thing. I've seen the, I've seen the manager, I've seen the CEO interviewed and he says, why would I go and buy back stock when my competitor just bought back stock and their stock price has gone down? You know, it's gone down further. What, what, what's the point? Like you've misunderstood what's actually going on here and you're thinking far too short term. It's not their fault. Like they come from their background as in inventing something. They've invented this product and it's working pretty well. There's a little bit of weakness in the market and they could go and buy back some stock and do very well. They just have to think in a longer term. And then to the extent that people are taught about these things, the way that they're taught is the efficient market hypothesis and they're taught all of that stuff. I did law. I did a business degree first. My undergrad is business management and that included a lot of finance in addition to some other softer stuff, but there's a lot of finance in there. And they teach, well, they did when I went through, they were teaching, they were still teaching efficient markets hypothesis. You're teaching beta that nobody is really teaching this stuff. And I don't know why, because it's Buffett and Munger have been around for so long. They're so well known. They're clearly, they're very, very successful guys. They're clearly very well known. I think the best MBA that you could get really is just reading Buffett's letters. Beyond that, I don't really read Buffett's letters, go through the Buffett archive. That's an incredible resource. I think CNBC's website's got it. You can see all the questions that they get asked at general meetings in the afternoons and the responses in there, they explain, you know, they've started businesses and they, they're, so they've been entrepreneurs as well. They're not just investors. They've started businesses and those businesses have worked for the most part. So that's interesting. And lots of businesses fail. And then they've got other businesses like Seize Candy and they talk about, you know, why don't you expand Seize Candy? And they say, we've tried everything that we can think of for decades to expand it. It's just that it doesn't travel. That sort of explains why Buffett liked Coke so much because he said, holy cow, here's this product. It's just like the Seize Candy. People like the brand. They'll pay a little premium. And guess what? Everybody in the world knows about it. Like this is kind of a sure thing. I don't really know why. I I guess I do know why. There's a few things. One of it is just lots of people don't know. And the other one is that it's sort of slightly against everybody's way too short term, particularly CEOs of businesses like that. They're looking forward one quarter, most of them looking forward one quarter, looking forward to the stock price tomorrow or as soon as they possibly can get it back up. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And it's so funny to say all that stuff because that's what Buffett and Munger said when I read this stuff when I was 17. I'm 44 now. I've been doing this for a long time. <laughs> Nothing's changed. I don't think anything's ever going to change. I think it'll be exactly the same, which is a good thing because it means, you know, if you can stay in the markets and learn over time, nobody else, like the market itself doesn't learn. That's the most amazing thing. I remember the 1999, I was a student. I wasn't investing. I didn't have any money, but I remember the stock market running up and I had read the Buffett stuff and I was looking at all this stuff thinking, this is funny. Like, this is really crazy that this is going on. 
not expecting that it would collapse, like not really understanding anything, and then seeing it collapse. And since then, I've seen 2000, you know, the run up to 2007 and then that collapse. And I've seen the run up to 2020 and that collapse and whatever we're going through now. The cycles just keep on coming and no, the market doesn't learn anything. But if you can hang around in it for a little bit with a good theoretical framework, which I think Buffett and Munger give, and you can learn and you really can, the market gets easier and easier to invest in because people just keep on making the same mistakes and you, and you personally can learn. You know? Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. US only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. So for investors who are interested in concentrating their portfolio, you gave some great advice to maintain a margin of safety with a few positions. 
Investors can find a strong margin of safety by searching for protection from either, quote, assets or by a strong franchise and an unlevered balance sheet. I want to focus on the balance sheet part of this equation. Since a concentrated portfolio will be very sensitive to a position going to zero, having a healthy balance sheet becomes very, very important. What areas of balance sheets should investors focus on the most if they intend on running a concentrated portfolio? The guiding rules should be, it's not your biggest position shouldn't be the one that you think you're going to make the most money on. It's the one that you are most certain you're going to make money on. The safest position in the portfolio should be the biggest position. And so then if you're just thinking in terms of safety, you would want a liquid balance sheet. You want cash and you want lots of assets that, God forbid, you actually have to sell them under some sort of fire sale. That means your analysis is probably wrong in that instance. I don't know how much downside protection assets really provide. I think that you, what, you, what you want is liquidity. I mean, not a lot of debt. The number of times that I've seen debt damage really otherwise good business, you know, the number of times that businesses get taken over and they get leave it up, or they get taken private and they get leave it up, or the company just pays a, pays a special dividend and leave us up to do it. It's amazing that it still goes on, but it does. Of course, it still goes on. Look at most companies. They're too, there's too much debt because most big companies that any of the consumer staples that have very stable earnings have had for the most part because and it may be an anomaly that they have looked like that because the the world was once there was one television set that everybody watched and there are a handful of channels and then you went into the supermarket and there was a finite amount of supermarket space and so it was very very valuable to have Colgate advertising Colgate sitting there in the supermarket you could buy it now it's not like that at all you buy you scroll Instagram and you find something that you like and you buy it off Instagram and so the, the entry, the barriers to entry are much, much lower for those consumer staples. But you go and look at those consumer staples balance sheets and they're all trash. They've, they've been financially engineered to tweak the last little bit of growth out because it helps the manager. You're a manager, you go in there, you get a big option slug. You're going to be there for three or five years as CEO. You're going to lever it up, jack up that share price and sail off into the sunset with a big payoff and that big pile of debt is the next guy's problem. You know? And then there's so many examples of that. It's hard to find companies that don't have that. So that would be the first thing that I would say. You don't want a whole lot of debt. You want a whole lot of cash. And then you want a management team that's... I think it's really simple. Basically, you want a management team that is like Buffett and Munger. And you're not going to get that. So you just discount as you go down. You get some... There are lots of good guys out there. There are lots... I should... It's not that you're not going to get that. It's just that like they, that's an extreme example of super smart guys doing the right thing for a very long period of time who really understand how to run a business. But then everybody else has a sort of slight discount to that. And so you discount for that reason. They're just not quite as good. I would have said John Malone for a long time with that Liberty Complex, but gee, that Liberty Complex got complicated and it's levered and cross-holding. It's, it's too complex to kind of figure out. So complexity is an issue. So I tend to avoid complexity just because... The number of frauds that I have seen that were basically using complexity to cover up the fraud makes me suspicious now of complexity because I think, why be this complex? And well, I don't think Malone's a fraud. I think that they're using it for tax purposes. They're, they're trying not to pay tax, which is fine, but the complexity is an issue. And it just, it's always a little red flag. So more cash than debt, simple balance sheets are great, good businesses that throw off lots of cash. And then you want a management team that's reinvesting sensibly, mostly in the same business, but making bolt-on acquisitions when it makes sense, buying back stock when it makes sense, all of those things. I think it's very common sense. I, I really don't think that the business analysis and company analysis is sort of almost a commodity. 
being able to, you can go and find any number of websites that will do it for you quantitatively. You can go to Seeking Alpha, you can go to Guru Focus, you can go to any of these sites. Like finding something that's undervalued with a good balance sheet, all of those things is pretty trivial. And I think quantitatively, that's what I try to do. I'm just trying to buy all of those things because I know that if you hold a basket of those, you'll do very well over time. Every now and again, you'll find one though that's the, the part that is hard, the judgment at the very top to size something versus something else. That's really hard to learn over a long period of time. And I don't know that necessarily that I have that even, even now for as long as I've been doing it. I'm very wary of that. I think you can fool yourself that something is better, but the longer you do it, the more obvious things become. One example I think was Meta when Meta sort of got cheap last year. Meta possessed all of the things that I like in a business, even though it's a, even though it's sort of a, it's newer. It's hard to see. There's some behavioral changes all the time, and people keep on using the blue website. Everybody accessing it through Instagram. Do people transition over to TikTok? The numbers seem to be pretty good, but at its root, that was a high cash flow generating machine. Where Zuck was Zuck's the owner, operator, founder. He knows what he's doing, and he wants to win. He's he's competitive. But the stock price was going down because TikTok's a competitor and all these other things are going on. You, you remember all that stuff that went on. But I thought this is a pretty good example of this is about as good as it gets, I think, for I would size a position up like that. And that one, that, that, that did work out, uh, has worked out so far as a good position. But I think that the, the thing that was holding it back mostly was the amount of money that they were spending in the metaverse. And at some point, Zuck's competitive juices got turned away from investing in the metaverse to buying back the stock. And at that point, that was, a, that was basically a no-brainer, I think. So my favorite case study from Concentrate Investing was John Maynard Keynes, which you discussed a little bit. I really enjoyed learning about his evolution from kind of an arrogant trader who relied on his, quote, superior knowledge of economic cycles all the way to a long-term buy-and-hold investor who placed a heavy emphasis on business and didn't bother attempting to time the market, regardless of his economic conditions. So what were your takeaways from his evolution and how do you try to limit the roadblock of ego in life and investing? There are lots of interesting things from that because he invested through the Great Depression and he was running endowments through the Great Depression where he was responsible for their investments and it was King's College and things that he cared about. So he was really trying to get them through. And he had these, I think one was an insurance company and one was the endowment and he Everything was way down. Everything had been smashed to smithereens. Just an unbelievable devastation of those portfolios. Like they were down 80 or 90%, which was basically the market was down that much. And one board was so shell-shocked, they just wanted to liquidate and get out. And the other one was feeling the same way. And he said to them, look, we're at this point where if everything goes to zero, it's not going to matter whether we're fully invested or not. But if everything recovers, then of course, we want to be fully invested here. So he he managed to talk one into remaining fully invested and he didn't talk the other one in. And of course, everything did rebound over time and it worked out ultimately. So, and the number of times that I have come across couples who are in their early 60s, this was in 2000, after 2009, in sort of 2015, 16, 17, 18, the number of times that I ran into couples who were in their early 60s who had made a whole lot of money, but who had pulled out of the market in 2009 and were waiting for that moment to get back in. It was just so, every week I'd go and meet somebody who was like that. And so that just sort of seared into my mind that you've got to be prepared to pull the trigger when the market goes down because you just otherwise you just never get another chance to get back in. So you have to do that. You have to find a way to be fully invested at the bottom. And sometimes that means you've got to be fully invested at the top. Unfortunately for me, that's what that means for many other people. You just have to know that it's time to get fully invested. 
The ego thing is tough. I think that if you spend enough time in the market, you will see enough bulletproof companies go to zero that you just know that everything has within it the seeds of its own destruction. And you kind of have to, as do we all, you have to kind of watch these things and know that any one of them could blow up. And so it's a reverse. I call it, it's like a via negativa is the approach. You go through and you look at these things and you just, all of the obvious problems, management's not good enough, balance sheet's too levered, cyclical business, all of those things, you just have to take those out. You can't invest in those things that have those qualities, that have those properties. And you're left with at the end this handful of things that you haven't been able to eliminate for any other reason, for any other reason. And that's the one that ultimately ends up in the portfolio. And it's sort of a reverse process of not trying to find things, but trying to eliminate everything you possibly can. And sometimes everything just gets through the filters. So that's for me, that's the the ego thing is also it's a very common behavioral error that people attribute their own success to success to their own skill and failure to outside. And so that's one of the reasons that I stay quantitative mostly and I rely on the model because I know that it's all outside of me. If I have a good idea, so someone will say, you know, whatever, accruals is a great way of finding. If you have accruals are blowing out, that means there's potentially it's a great short because it means that they're reporting more income basically than they're earning in cash flow. And so that has to show up as a asset on the balance sheet somewhere and it shows up as an accrual. It's a very common way of finding lots and lots of frauds. That's a great idea. So I'll go and test that. And then I'll put that into the model. And then the model, the next time it's run, will be looking for that kind of thing. That's an example. I've always had accruals in there, but I'm just as an example of something. So it's never me making the decision, good or bad. I don't have really much into any construction of any portfolio. So if it's good performance, it's not me. If it's bad performance, it's also not me. Oh, it's probably, it's obviously it's my fault. But I think that's one way of doing it. You just have to actively combat all of the behavioral errors that people commonly make. And getting to, I've tried to do that. You get too concentrated, you blow up. You buy stuff that's too hot, you blow up. If everybody's piling into something, it tends to fall apart. All of those things that are just obvious, I try to put in. So I think that ego is a problem. The number of times that I have seen too, guys who, when they go very well, it definitely flushes you with something. You know, you feel good. You feel like you're, you're powering ahead. And that's often when people make their biggest mistakes, when they've had a good run. And it's the tragedy of it is that if you're a guy who sizes up, you know, you want to be Kelly betting into something. Your portfolio is up a lot. The portfolio is really big. You're going to put 40% of an enlarged portfolio into a position, and that position is the one that blows up. That's how you wax more money than you've made at any point in the entire cycle. And not to pick on Kathy Wood, but Kathy has sized up some of those positions right into the face of the big drawdown. But that's not unique to her. That's basically the way everybody goes. They, they size up into these things. So I. I just equal weight my positions. I don't know which ones are going to be the biggest ones and which ones are going to be the... And it's, there's so much noise. There's so much randomness. You could be in a very good... You could tick all of the boxes, have dodged all of the bullets. It's just something you haven't thought of. The government changes some regulation, completely changes the nature of that business. So there are lots of periods of time where Chinese reverse takeovers were very popular for a period of time and then they collapsed. But then shortly after that, there was this for-profit colleges where they looked great on every metric other than the fact that the Obama administration had basically decided to eliminate them. But they were all very, very cheap and they were good businesses. They made a lot of money. Like there was, it's intellectual property. They get people in there. It's recurring revenue. 
and they got very cheap, but they're all gone. Basically, they're almost all gone. There's a handful floating around, but not very many. And so, it would be easy to fill up on those things. So, another way to do it is just to make sure you're not too heavily exposed to any sector or industry or theme or however you define it. You just assume that everything that you're doing has something wrong with it. There's a crack in everything that you're doing and any single part of it could fall apart. And your objective is not so much to maximize your return in the short term. Jake Taylor, who's my co-host on another podcast, Value After Hours, he says this, if you look at the future value equation, it's one plus R, which is one plus the rate of return raised to N, which is the number of periods of time that you compound one plus R. And everybody focuses on maximizing the R. They want the rate of return to be as high as possible. And he says the real secret is maximize the N. Because if you, you can sit down and do that calculation, you know, if you can get, if you can get 30% a year compounded for 11 years, that'll give you a great return. If you can get 15% a year compounded for 50 years, it's a vastly bigger return. The N is the secret, not the R. And so, to the extent that you're reducing your R to maximize your N, that's always a good thing. So, that's what, that's what I think about. We've got to survive. I want to be in this business for a really long period of time. I love doing it. I want to go out feet first, toes up. I want to be sitting at the desk. That's the nice thing. It's not a physical business. You can sit in a seat and do it. You can do it evidently. Munger's almost 100, so you can, almost do it. you can do it to almost 100 at least. Buffett's in his 90s. That's a long time. And I, I want to keep on doing it for that long. I hope that this interview comes back in 50 years' time. And it's me saying I want to be doing this in 50 years' time. hope I live that long. So I'd like to discuss some lessons that qualitative investors can take from the quantitative side of things that you specialize in. If you were talking to a qualitative investor, what accessible data sources are they ignoring that you think would give them additional valuable information? I think there's essentially there's two ways of approaching investment. And I think at the, the two that you presented at the start are a pretty good view of that range. There's, you're either starting with the valuation and then making sure that it's a sufficiently healthy balance sheet and all those other things. Or you come up with your list of names that you want to hold because these are the 100 best businesses in America or the 300 best businesses globally. And they're all phenomenal businesses. The problem is they're all too expensive. So you go through with your 300 and you have a valuation for each one of those, which you will buy at. And probably you go and put your market orders in to buy at that price. Or not market orders, sorry. You put your limit order in at that price or however you want to do it. But you kind of say that you will buy or you make a pact with yourself to buy these things at the right price. I don't know that it's so much data because I still, I really do think that the valuation of these companies is largely a commodity. Like everybody knows when something gets cheap. Everybody knew about Meta when it got cheap. It wasn't a secret. Everybody knew about Apple when it got cheap. Even after Buffett bought it, you had plenty of time to buy it. All of these companies, it's not like they're not known. It's that when they become known, the problem, the reason why they're now undervalued also becomes known at the same time. And that's the thing that scares people off. I see people do it on Twitter all the time. They say, if this stock gets to this price, I will back up the truck. And the stock gets to that price and they say, well, wait a second. I now I know the reason why it's got to that price. Like it's the patent's going to expire or something, whatever it is. And I think you've done all this research and you've done all of this work and here you're not prepared to buy at this point in time. Like what was the point of doing all of that work and all of that research? You should have imagined this possibility that there would be a problem or you should know what the problem's likely to be when it comes to this and you should be able to make the decision. 
And sometimes the advantage that I have as a deep value guy is I'm always looking at stuff that's busted. I'm always looking at stuff that's got hair on it. There's always a problem with the things that I'm buying and I'm relying on mean reversion for, the, for many of them. I look at the, the same thing that everybody else looks at. It's just that the valuation is so compelling at some of these prices that we've got a handicap. This thing's not going to win the race, but it is going to show a place. And the price that we're getting to show a place is so good here that it's worth putting on this position. Having said that, I know that about half of them are going to be errors, so it doesn't bother me so much that I don't know which ones are going to be errors, otherwise I wouldn't put them into the portfolio. But I know that most of the, half the time, the market's right half the time. The stock itself, the market is wrong and the, the payoff in the market is wrong. is so big that it's worth putting these bets on. So it's not so much finding additional data, it's just being aware of the valuation. You need to be aware roughly of what, there's an implied return, there's an expected return at every given price for every given company. And so that expected return is basically what is it going to pay you as a dividend and what is it going to be able to reinvest in its own business. And then those are both perpetuities. You assume they're both perpetuities and that gives you roughly what you're going to earn from this business. Some of them, the numbers are just so noisy that you can't really do that. And so that's a cyclical where you're expecting, you're relying on some mean reversion. But for the better companies, that's exactly what you're doing. You're looking at how much cash flow it's throwing off what are you paying for that cash flow? What is the company then doing with that cash flow? Is it paying it back to you as a dividend or a buyback or however else it gets it to? Or is it reinvesting at a rate of return? How likely is it to continue earning that rate of return in the future? If you can put those things together, that's the evaluation. It doesn't need to be more complicated than that. It's something you can do realistically on the back of a napkin, having read through a few 10Ks, probably 10Qs as well, understanding that You've got finite information. You don't have all the information that you need. That's the beauty of that Klarman quote that he says. It's the uncertainty that is the thing that scares people. And this is the crazy thing too. This, you see this in the markets all the time. That, so I had, when the Obama administration was bringing in the, the Affordable Care Act, and that was going to impact these insurance companies, and they had blocked a few of the insurance companies from merging. So United was the biggest, and then uh, Humana and that the other four underneath were combining together. And so combined, they wouldn't be as big as, as United, which was the biggest at the time. And so I was at that point in time, something had happened to the risk arbitrage industry. So all the spread, someone had blown up in risk arbitrage, something strange had happened. The spreads were all very wide. And so for a period of time, I was a risk arbitrager through there where I was long some of these names, not pure risk arbitrage because I didn't put the short leg on, but I had some options and some other things in there. And I watched that spread trade wide. And what they were waiting on was a decision from, from the administration about whether they were allowed to proceed with the merger or not. And the worst case outcome was that they're not allowed to proceed with the merger. During this period of time, United, which isn't in a merger, the stock price just keeps on going up. But all of these other ones with all of the uncertainty, their businesses are still fine. It's just whether they combine together or not. They were all trading sideways and down. The day that the administration announces that it's going to be blocked, which is the worst case outcome that everybody was worried about, all of these stocks leapt. It just doesn't make any sense. But what it really showed me was that the uncertainty was worse than the worst case outcome. It doesn't make any sense until you sort of understand that people really, really hate uncertainty. And so if you can find a way to operate through uncertainty, knowing that sometimes half the time you're making an error doesn't matter because the payoff is so good when you don't make an error or when you turn out to be right. So that's where I think about it. It's really finding a way to operate under uncertainty. That is the, one of the keys to sort of outperforming, I think. 
So in a recent discussion with the TIP mastermind community, you mentioned that value is an early cycle indicator when looking at economic cycles. I'd love to get a better understanding of how performance of value does in regard to economic cycles. This is an observation of mine. I don't know how, I don't know how empirical or how true this is really, but I, I have heard it talked about in other contexts. So at the moment, this is a, a current example. All of these small and value strategies are selling off while the rest of the market still seems to be okay. The FANG, or whatever we're calling it now, the Magnificent Seven is, is running ahead and it's doing fine. It's probably up today where everything else is down. But it's been my observation that going into a crash, value tends to sell off first. And I don't know why. It's, there's already some uncertainty with these names, so people don't want to be anywhere near anything that's got any uncertainty in it. And then when the crash comes, the rest of the market sort of catches down to value, which is already having its crash. And then for whatever reason, value seems to recover first. So value bounces out of the bottom of the recession, maybe because they're cyclical companies and there's some risk that they go into financial distress or go into bankruptcy. And when it turns out that's not going to happen, you've taken the risk, that risk off the table. And so they bounce very quickly back to where they were beforehand or even a little bit higher. And then early stage of the recovery tends to be value. And then as the recovery goes on and it transitions into a normal market and then into sort of a more bullish where people have forgotten about the risk again, then all of the stuff that is growthier and more sort of glamorous tends to run at that point. Value doesn't participate and then value sells off again at the end. So that seems to be the cycle that typically it's the better the market feels, the less they're sort of looking at the downside risk, the more value seems to not participate because value is just not very glamorous. And then at the very blow-off top end, value sort of sells off a little bit because people are pulling money out of the value stocks that haven't worked to stick it into the stuff that is working. And then there's the collapse and it starts all over again. Value bounces out of the bottom. That's my observation. I, I don't know. I think it's John Hussman has, he describes it as, oh, he's got a name for it. I, I just can't remember what the name for it is, but it's basically that idea that weakness in small and value is sort of an indicator that there's some problem with the underlying market. And on the other hand, strengthen them. Sort of, it's more of a classic bottom of the market when value starts bouncing first. I think that that is, that's, that's sort of what I think is true. I've never sort of seen any study demonstrating that it's the case, but that's what I, I feel is true. Tobias, thank you so much for joining me today. Before we say goodbye, where can the audience connect with you and learn more about you, your books, and the Acquirers Fund? Thanks so much for having me, Kyle. It was really great chatting to you. My funds are Zig, which is deep value, mid cap, large cap in the US, and Deep, which is small and micro value in the US. The, you can go to the acquirersfunds.com, has a link through to the, the website, or you can go to acquirersmultiple.com, which has a screen, uh, has a free screen of large cap companies that are, sort of meet these criteria of being cheap on an acquirers multiple basis. And there's links to the books. If you go to Amazon and you search my name, some books will come up and I, have a, I do have a new book coming out sometime in the next few months. I'm just finishing it up right now. So I'm hoping to get that out. In really, it's, it's way, way overdue. So it's coming. Okay, folks, that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the show and I'll see you back here very soon. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional 
This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.